Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily Digest. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and our weekly podcast, Thinking LSAT. Here's what we talked about this week. Uh, we have an email here from Liv. Hey Ben and Nathan, I'm currently studying for the LSAT. My parents obviously want me to do well on the LSAT and are really pushing a Kaplan course. I, an avid listener of the podcast, know that Kaplan sucks. That's true. They have it in their head that Kaplan is the key to success, despite me trying to challenge them on their reasoning behind that claim. I have been using the demon and I'm afraid that taking a Kaplan course will decrease my score. Ultimately, they are the ones paying for my prep. Any advice on what I can tell and show them to help them see the truth about Kaplan and other similar prep courses? Love the podcast. Thanks. Live. We could attack this in a few different ways. Um, you know, you could have them call me. My phone number is like public. Have your folks call me. 415-518-0630. Call Nathan Fox. Your mom and dad can talk to me. Yeah. And uh, I'll I'll try to set them straight. I mean, I'm just going to tell them the truth about this whole process, but they can talk to me. Email me, Nathan at LSATdemon.com. Happy to talk to them about it. What do you say, Ben? Sorry. Well, as a parent, this brings up a lot of like thoughts about, you know, what parents should be doing. And I don't know where you are in your life, Liv, but I would try to gain a little more independence. Maybe you can take on some financial responsibility and put yourself, put some distance between you and your parents. Look, I'm a parent. I'm not saying this because parents are bad. I'm saying it because everyone needs to like on some level, right? Start making decisions for themselves. And it sounds like your parents are pretty in the weeds in terms of the details of your life. Like, oh, I think you should take this class and I think you should prep in this way. I would much rather them flip it around and say, hey, you want to go to law school? How do you want to prepare for that? Um, You might be wrong. You might be the one saying, hey, I want to go take a Kaplan class. And as a parent, I would say, you know, I haven't heard that many great things about Kaplan, but ultimately that's your decision. On some level, they got to start stepping back so that you can step up. Um, I had this realization. I know I'm just kind of going on a tangent here a little bit, but I was this was just like a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to some friends of mine who were almost you know, I was close enough to them that they were almost like parents when I was growing up. And I was telling them about one of our kids getting ready for college. And I said, you know what, we got to, we got to figure out this whole budget thing. We're trying to help him figure out, you know, what his budget's going to be in college. And she stopped me halfway through my comment and she goes, no, he needs to figure out his budget. Yeah. And I was like, it just like hit me like a lightning bolt. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. What, why am I trying to like, get all enmeshed in that. It's like, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to help. I'm going to provide advice, but that's going to come with them in the driver's seat. Right. Anyways. um, Well, you got to teach them to fish, right? I mean, it's just like, you think you're, you're given, you got to, it's like the take off the training wheels kind of a thing. You've got, you you have to let them go and they've got to, it's they got to fall be, sometimes. <laughs> right. Learn to do it yourself. Learn to figure it out yourself. Yeah. Um, boy, that that's, I'm not sure that Liv is, I mean, yeah, she could try to have that conversation with her parents and see if they're willing to do that. I mean, ultimately, you know, they're writing the check 
And so they might be like, well, yeah, but we're paying for your prep and we know better than you do about what's good. And for whatever reason, you know, one of them's a lawyer and they took Kaplan 30 years ago. Yeah. Or one of them yeah. knows a lawyer who took Kaplan 30 years ago. Or uh, they did Kaplan for a different exam. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm an LSAT expert in 2022, and I can tell you that Kaplan sucks on the LSAT in 2022. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the history. I don't know about other exams. I don't know about other stuff. I know that we're dramatically better and cheaper than Kaplan yep. for the LSAT. Yep. Now, um, I would go so far as saying, you know, I would tell your parents you don't want a Kaplan course. Like, I would just say, no, thanks. I won't do it. I don't want it. Yep. You know, if they won't pay for the demon. Um, see if you can get them to pay for just a prep plus account and just do practice tests, doing practice tests and figuring it out on your own. Listen to old episodes of our podcast. Come to obviously have a demon free account, get invited to our free classes. I'm doing different topics now every other every other Thursday. Um, so come, you know, sit in on all those topics. You'll learn like this one that's coming up soon. Um, what's the date on that again? We should shout that out here. Uh, Thursday, yeah. June 2nd, I'm doing a class called the right way to blind review. Yeah. Uh, go to lsat.link slash Nathan for all my free classes. Um, but you know, you just need a demon free account and you'll start getting emails that invite you to these classes. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a hundred percent confident. <laughs> like if you only came to my free classes and had a law hub account, had access to the prep tests and, you know, meet a study partner, maybe, review the right way if you review the right way you're going to do better than you would do in kaplan i'm yeah. confident in that yeah kaplan's so, going to hurt you that's the yeah, problem so totally. if you really have to go it's like geez just ah, don't go but then no tell them you don't want to do it just tell them yeah. no thanks can i have a 100 bucks though so that i can get a law hub account and you know but also can i have <laughs> a few hundred bucks so that I can do demon for a month. Like, let me try it for a month and see how it goes. Right. Kaplan is going to be like a thousand dollars. Just you have to pay for commit to this whole big thing. Right. Or maybe they, they don't like the name. Stupid <laughs> coupons. Oh, the demon. I, who knows? Whatever. But, but Liv, honestly, have them call Nathan. I think that solution <laughs> right there will, will do way more than just get you into the demon. I think it will help them understand the game that you're entering into. Like Nathan can help them see, look, this is the game we're playing. This is the law school scholarship game. Uh, we are going to help you so much more than just with LSAT preparation. Yeah. I don't always answer my phone when from unknown numbers, but if they leave me a message and say, I'm Liv's mom, I'd like to talk to you. I will call her right back mm -hmm. and I would be happy to have a conversation with her. I like, I, I'm passionate about rescuing people. Like I just don't want you to beat your head against the wall and give money to a shitty prep program. You know, yes, I am self-interested, obviously, but I, you know, for a few hundred dollars, I can move you forward. And for a thousand dollars, Kaplan will move you backward. So I'm happy to say that to your mom. She can hate me if she wants, but happy to say it. Yep. With us today is Eric Johansson. Eric, you're the editor of, uh, thinking LSAT podcast. You're the editor of LSAT Demon Daily. You're a former LSAT Demon student who is now about to become an LSAT Demon mm -hmm. teacher. And you are applying to law school this fall for 2023 admission. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's the plan. Okay, cool. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Eric's here because we had a recent conversation about 
Uh, well, Eric, why don't you were just on the phone with LSAC, so why don't you just kick it off? Yeah, sure. So this was all prompted by when I was editing at first and then later listened to the published podcast that you did with Ruth, Nathan, uh, where you were taking discussing an email from a listener who was calling in about their 4.28 GPA and right, one, 177 LSAT who <laughs> um, right. yeah. was was definitely not a troll in any way and and just a valued listener. Um, <laughs> well, there was some there was some back and forth on the the comments about that one whether it was legit or not, but yeah. Well, I can tell you that it is legit that you could have a GPA from your undergraduate institution above a 4.0. And the conversation you got into with Ruth at the end just had to do with the fairness of, wait, can you do that? Because that assumes that you're able to get an A plus from your undergraduate institution, which would be weighted more highly than a 4.0, but not all institutions give A pluses. And on when I was listening to that, I thought, yeah, wait a minute. I don't think I got A pluses or had the opportunity to get A pluses from where I went to college. Um, so I, I went back in for both the transcripts that I got directly from my school and then also looking at my LSAC GPA conversion uh, info that was on their site. And yeah, sure enough, uh, the school that I went to, the highest possible grade I could have gotten was an A which was a 4.0. So that, as you discussed, strikes me as a little unfair that I would be disadvantaged. And <laughs> I, I say all this uh, knowing perfectly well that my GPA is, is fine and I'm not trying to tell like a woe is me sob story over all of this, but it is true that I didn't have the opportunity to score as highly with my GPA as someone who went to a different school where A pluses were possible. Yeah, it's a different scale, right? Like you could have A minuses and A pluses and then come out just as good as Eric here with all A's or whatever you have, Eric. But yeah, you, it doesn't make you sense. Eric could have gotten 110% on every grade. He could every he could have got an A plus on every exam and an A plus on every assignment and done every extra credit assignment and got nothing but perfect grades all four years of college and at his school, his GPA would be 4.0 and his LSAC GPA would be 4.0 because he does not go to a school that gives A pluses. Now, someone else who went to a school that did give A pluses, they could have gotten less than perfect on every assignment, but still gotten A pluses in some of the classes, maybe. Or they could have gotten some A's and some A minuses and mixed it in. And even who knows, like they got a single B somewhere. But then they got enough A pluses to outweigh it. And then they end up with, a, with an LSAC GPA higher than the guy who literally got perfect in every single class just because their undergrad institution offers A pluses. Am I understanding correctly? That, that's basically it. To give some math behind it, um, I had my, my undergraduate GPA is a 3.82 with the majority of my credit hours being A's, the highest possible grade I could have gotten at my school I, I did some uh, I did the back of the envelope math and if all of those A's were instead A pluses it would have bumped my GPA from a 3.82 to a 4.18 so that's a huge difference a 0.3 especially for grades that are well, I was just reading this yesterday LSAC was saying that 
the LSAT is a better predictor of law school success in part, and especially at the top, because the undergraduate GPAs that people are applying with are all very, very close to each other, right? So how do you distinguish applicants who all have a 3.82 or a 3.83 or a 3.84? So giving some applicants a 0.3 advantage is astronomical. I mean, it's it's taking them out of the this small cluster of UGPAs, right? And putting them way above it. It doesn't make any sense. I guess we got to hear what, what LSAC told you. Sure. So this, of course, struck me as, as unfair. And of course, I don't expect that every one of my A's would have been A pluses. And uh, it would be impossible to know because there wasn't a 100 point scale that has been preserved or even used in the first place, I think, when I got my grade. So I, I wouldn't even be able to go back to my undergraduate institution and say, hey, for any of my 98s and above, can you just report that as an A plus? Because those numbers don't exist. So I called up, well, I, it started with a phone call, led to a cup, <laughs> started with a phone call with LSAC where they immediately just transferred me to their transcript assembly service who just checked on my GPA and then sent me back an email saying, Hey, everything is calculated. correctly." <laughs> you're fine. You're and doing said, just fine. Yeah, right. That's not so my I, question. <laughs> so I said, no, I, I know I, I also have my transcript. I also have your, uh, your guide for grading. I did the math. I know it's calculated correctly. That's not my problem. Mm. It's mm. that the scale that you are using to calculate these GPAs is, is unfair. It's not equal. Um, so that led to another email. And then I, I ended up just calling LSAC again and had a, had a fairly good, uh, if not productive, a, a, a friendly and spirited conversation with a person on their end who I explained the situation to. There were basically two takeaways. The first one, which was interesting to me, um, when I explained that, Hey, this, you say that you're grading everything on a standard 4.0 system, that the whole point of an LSAC transcribing people's GPAs and or, or interpreting people's GPAs is to standardize everything to a 4.0, um, which doesn't seem to be happening. And what I learned was that if your undergraduate GPA is above a 4.0, the LSAC GPA that gets reported gets cut down to a 4.0. Okay, so it, it kind of fixes the problem, but we still have the same problem that you could have lower grades and then use the A pluses to offset them. Right, yes. So on a surface level, exactly, yes. They are standardizing it to a 4.0 and that they don't report from LSAC's side anything above a 4.0. They just cut it down to 4.0. But if you, were, if you have A pluses on your transcript, then you were, you did still have that opportunity to boost any of your A minuses or P pluses. Um, That's hilarious. Okay, so you actually we, can't have above a 4.0 LSAC GPA. According to what I was told on the phone from the LSAC representative, that's correct that they that they report only up to 4.0. So going back to our trolling versus no trolling discussion from that episode of The Daily that I recorded with Ruth, if that guy was talking about not LSAC GPAs. If he was talking about his transcript GPA, then it's legit. But if he was talking about his LSAC GPA, then it just doesn't matter. Correct. Yeah. Because so, it's going to be chopped down to a 4.0 anyway. 
That's one way of correcting for it, but it's still totally bogus because then you could get an A minus and an A plus and an A minus and an A plus and have a 4.0. Correct. Wait, yeah, you're, so, you're but still they could in, fix yeah. it if they did it on a class <laughs> level, right? If they if they capped each class at 4.0, but they said, oh, you got an A plus, we're going to treat that if as If they just a. disregarded A pluses and turned them into A's, but that's not what they're doing. Instead, they're just like, well, because it's easier. It's right. It's like it's definitely fewer steps. It's one step. It's just like, oh, four point anything gets truncated to four point exactly. And then that's it's, it. It's easier, but it's strange because they're doing a lot of complicated <laughs> shit, right? They're already like I know. going in and deciding what to do about pass fail. They're going in and deciding what to do about repeats. Like, OK, just look at any classes that are A pluses, make those A's and recalculate the GPA. This isn't this isn't much harder. No, that's it, disturbing. No, it seems clear that the the only the only real way to fix this in a fair way is to, as you said, Nate, just disregard A pluses. When LSAC does their conversion, anything that is listed as an A plus, just count that as a 4.0. Don't count as a 4.3. Because even if you're cutting scores down to 4.0 on a final on the final number that they report, like you said, yeah, you can still it's easier to get to a 4.0 if you can get a pluses uh at okay. your school which which i wasn't able to well, it's uh, and it's easier to keep any grade point average it's still a point three advantage for everybody it, it's still just it's still patently unfair and this barely fixes anything all this does is it makes it so that if you went to a school that has above that has a pluses then okay so you can't actually get an above a 4.0 or at least it, you'll just be a 4.0 exactly okay fine Fine, whatever. But it doesn't fix anything because the differences between the GPAs are already so small. And if the, the like effective range is really, you know, especially if we're talking about these top schools, the effective range is like 3.7 to 3.95 or something like that, right? It's like, you know, the, the operative range is fractions of a point, tenths of a point is what we're talking about. And if you have the ability to get an A plus, then, you know, an A plus cleans up an A minus. Anyways, so that was the fix that the representative I spoke to, who seemed knowledgeable and intelligent, um, did have a good conversation with her. Um, that's that's what she said. It's like, yeah, we don't report above 4.0. That's how we standardize it. That's and how we standardize I, it. I mean, yeah. I, that is not how you standardize That's well, maybe how you standardize it, but that's not, that's yeah, not so standardizing I, it. I presented all of that. So basically all of this, I told her. I, I, okay, I explained good. I'm all glad. of yes. yes, you're a so, thinking person. Yes. Yes. So I explained all of this on, on the phone. I said, look, that still doesn't help if I had been able to boost my GPA with 4.33s from A pluses, then sure, you couldn't report a grade above. You couldn't re report my theoretically 4.18 if all of my A's were A pluses, but you still would have been able to report a 4.0, which is a huge difference. Um, and the consolation that she provided, you can maybe predict, which is, well, I understand that, but we also do pass along the transcripts to the undergraduate into the law school. So the law schools will see your transcripts. So they'll know that this was the grading system that, and they'll know that your A's were the highest grades you could have seen. And, and they take all that into account. And the world there. doesn't see that. And us news doesn't see that, but you know, the yeah. schools, they will. So, so we know we can just kick the can down the road and pretend like we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so, mean, so I responded, I of course responded to that. And I said, well, look, the law schools don't report my transcript 
on their ABA 509 reports. And maybe they take my transcript direct from the uh, loss or from my undergraduate school into consideration, but that's not the number that they put on their 509s. It's the number that you send them. And basically after that, all she could say was, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't speak to how law schools make their <laughs> admissions decisions, but I understand what you're saying. And we basically, that's, that's where it was left was she understood all of the points that I was making, recognized them as potentially problematic and said, this is how we do it. Thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your feedback. Hmm. Yeah. It's surprising that this issue hasn't come up earlier. It sounds like it's almost like news to her. It almost sounds like they've been giving this response and people haven't been challenging. Oh, okay. Well, you standardized. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if, if it needs, if it gets changed, I'll of course leave. I gave my feedback on the phone. I'll follow up with their email uh, request for feedback after my session. Uh, and I think if anything changes it or prompts them to reassess how they do this calculation, it's, or, or handle GPAs, uh, it's, it's from a lot of people <laughs> giving feedback. Yeah. So if you have a 4.0 undergrad institution, in other words, you can't get a 4.3, um, maybe you should reach out to them in the spirit of curiosity and understanding, but the more requests they get, the more they're going to look into this issue. Yeah. And by the way, if you don't know, if you're in undergrad right now or uh, aren't sure what your transcript is, you can, of course, reach out to your school's registrar and request your transcripts. You can also go to, and this is a resource that I use to confirm how LSAC was handling my GPA. <laughs> if you search for LSAC's Interpretive Guide for Undergraduate Grading Systems, you can look up your school's specific grading table um, and do a search nice. for your school to see exactly what the grade conversion system is that LSAC uses with your school. Just just to just double check. I, it's it's a good thing to have your eye on. If you go to a school that doesn't offer A pluses, then yeah, consider reaching out to LSAC to give your feedback because yeah, and undergrad pre law advisors, same thing. I mean, like it's talk to your pre-law advisors y'all like or if you're a pre-law advisor yourself your school if you don't if your school doesn't offer a pluses then you're putting your students at a disadvantage um for law school admissions because of the way lsac uh or because of this system that you know some people get a pluses and it counts as a 4.3 uh maybe this is one of the reasons why law schools weight lsat so heavily and it might just be that the law schools are like, well, yeah, because we know that GPA is inherently bullshit because of this and other reasons. And and the band of GPAs that you're looking at are super narrow. So you're looking at a very small band, which is highly susceptible to manipulation. Yeah. <laughs> like someone goes up a few points and all of a sudden they're at the top of that band. And it's like, well, did that mean anything? They literally went to a different school, had a different major with different teachers. What can I glean from that? And also... Um, Oh, what else is I going to say? Oh, the predictive value of the LSAT for 1L grades is greater, much greater for the LSAT than GPA. So this is being backed up by studies. So the law schools would not be smart, I think, to rely so much on GPA. Studies are showing, hey, look, if you know someone's LSAT score, you're going to be a, you're going to do a better job of predicting their 1L grades 
than you are at predicting through their GPA. And 1L grades are a great predictor of overall grades. And overall grades are a great predictor of passing the bar and all these other things. So it's it makes sense. It's actually starting to make sense. Well, if you really want to get into the GPA discussion, you can start talking about grade inflation as well and what that means for someone like myself who has their sure. GPA from 10 years ago rather than rather than last year when we know that I think undergraduate GPAs have been rising at a clip of about a 0.1 per decade for the last since, since the 80s or so. <laughs> got to give the yeah. students what they're paying for. Yeah. They're paying more intuition, so you got to give them a little better. Well, and and I think one of the main reasons there's that's a whole other paying a lot more intuition. <laughs> yeah, the 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 great inflation thing is a whole other conversation. But it it I was reading recently about how higher grades correspond with a higher likelihood that you will actually stick it out through the four years of college. Of so if you're given someone, if if you look at your GPA and think. Oh, maybe school isn't going. It. Maybe school isn't going as badly as I had feared. I, I guess I will keep taking out these student loans uh, that will get funneled to the school. Um, that's what yeah, they do in law schools too. They used to fail people out of law school, right? Like this isn't working out for you. You're failing, and people would quit, or they would just get like actually get failed out of law school. That yeah. doesn't happen anymore because they want to keep harvesting those student loans. They want to keep harvesting, they want to keep milking that system for all it's worth. So now in law school, you know, you get a B. Oh yeah, you got a B. They pat you on the head. You know, your class rank is below the 50th percentile for your school. You get Bs and they just keep you, just keep on trucking you through, give you your yeah. JD. You know, I was just listening to a concept the other day. It was the idea that MBAs have taken over American business and made it much more about just, you know, tweaking these numbers and focusing on the bottom line and not on the product. It sounds like the same thing in law school, right? Like if that's what they're doing, it's like, oh, we're moving away from the, the professors who are like here to teach and fail someone out if they're not doing well to some accountants at the top of the law school saying, ah, hold up. We do that. We do these small tweaks. We can keep these people on another year or two or three. That's going to increase your bottom line. Good job, law school. You know, different people are running the show, maybe. I, if I could just, since I know this has been a long, summarize what I think be, are the takeaways for our listeners. Yes. One, which is not surprising, get a good GPA. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, and that doesn't change whether you're going to an A school or an A plus school. More importantly than that, get a good LSAT score because that's the reason I can afford to not be overly concerned about all of this nonsense because I have a good LSAT score. Yep. If you find out that you're going to a school that only offers up to A's and doesn't give A pluses, think about writing into LSAC to give your feedback on their conversion system. Kindly. Yes, kindly. And and I will say, like I, I did have a what I felt was a good and friendly conversation with an LSAC representative who was heard me and, and understood what my point was. Sure. The last one, I guess, would be a question, anticipating a listener question. And I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are. Is this something I should write a GPA addendum about? Because I have thoughts, but I want to hear if they <laughs> match your own. I feel like it's just going to come across as ex excuse complaining. I... Oh, 
you know, I, I would have had a higher GPA. My, you know, if, if I had been to a, a plus institution and my immediate reaction to that is, Oh, really? Like you would have gotten a pluses. I, and now you're fighting a different argument. That's not helpful. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying that's a justified reaction. It's just, that's my immediate reaction. Like, Oh, I could have gotten a pluses. Oh, really? Could you have like, and then I'm thinking about that. I, and everyone else at that school, apparently these do law, these law schools do consider this, you know, what school you're coming from. I think you're best just focusing on, yeah, the numbers are the yeah. numbers. If, if you've got to consider your reader, right? It's possible that some of the readers are going to just not even understand this issue at all. At which yeah, point, they're going to be confused. In now one paragraph, you're, you're not going to explain it to them. They're not going to understand it. They're not going to believe you. They don't under, you know, they don't know that you've actually done the research and really understand this issue. So you're not going to convince people who don't already know, and then people who already know already know. So I don't get. I don't see the point of it. Yeah. Yeah. You not getting an A plus is not a feather in your cap. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like ultimately, that's what you're telling good. them. You're like, hey, I didn't get any A pluses. Let me start with this. Let me, it's a very important point. I want you to know I have never received an A plus ever, ever in my, you know, because <laughs> that's what you are, in fact, telling them. Now, it wasn't possible for you to get an A plus, of course, but still, that's what you're pointing to. And many people are just going to be like, oh, yeah, well, we, we have this other person that got A pluses, though, <laughs> ironically. Yeah. yeah. I agree a hundred percent. I think, uh, I don't think a GPA addendum about this would really add anything that the school doesn't already know and could just come across as whining. Well, yeah. And that it's like, just, Oh yeah. Yeah. A million. Oh, here, here we go with another excuse of why your grades, <laughs> you know, aren't what they could have been. I, I don't, <laughs> I mean, that's a totally legitimate one, but it's just like, still who cares? Cause they are reading piles of excuses all day. I don't, they don't give a shit about that. I feel like we've already said this, but I guess one takeaway from all this is like, okay, GPA addendums are probably just not that important. Just period. Stop bringing attention to something that's already, you know, supposedly hurting you. That's, if that's why you're writing it. So. They're like, yeah, yeah. Like you got, do you have the LSAT? And I mean, Eric, you're showing up with the LSAT, right? And lots of other things that if they wanted to look at, they could look at those other things. You don't need to be, yeah, I, I wouldn't be whining about that. All right. Anything else, Eric, before we wrap it up? No, thanks for letting me come on and uh, share my piece. Oh, thanks so much for doing the research and bringing us the facts. That's awesome. We're we're always trying to learn. Um, we're daily at lsatdemon.com. So if you have any more uh, intel about this, I mean, I have one here, actually. This is, this is slightly interesting. It's a tiny little thing, but did, did you hear this? Um, so we got an email from Haig, that says LSAC recalculates our GPA based off our undergrad transcript and weights A pluses as a 4.33, regardless of whether your school did that or not. So instead of a 4.0 on the actual college transcript, but it says A plus on the transcript, then LSAC counts that as a 4.33 and A minuses as 3.67 instead of the typical 3.7. That would actually be a fix. We should do some more research here because that would actually be a partial fix. I mean, I don't think it's it's not as good of a fix. They should just not do the 4.33 thing ever. They should just call it 4.0. That's it. I brought up 
LSAC's grading scheme for my college, which only goes up to 4.0, and an A minus is weighted at my school as a 3.7 and by LSAC as a 3.67. Yeah. So they're doing that for everybody. Even if it wasn't doing it for okay. everybody, it's so a small not. fix, right? Yeah. Because you're adding. No, yeah. It's only incremental and it only counts if you actually get an A minus, right? Because like, what if you got a B? It wouldn't even affect you. But if you got a three, if you got an A minus. Okay. So, all right. So for LSAC, A minus is always 3.67 and A plus is always 4.33 if your school allows A pluses. And that's. That's amazing because even if your school doesn't count it for your GPA, so like you could go around and start grade grubbing to your professors going, hey, this won't affect my GPA at our school, but if you give me an A plus instead of an A, it does count for law schools. Mm. Like it counts on my GPA for law schools, even though it doesn't count on my GPA here. Yeah, the, the fix the fix is to only count A pluses as 4.0s when they're tallying up your totals. But to make that decision, they would also get blowback from all of the schools that offer A pluses because obviously the schools that give A pluses are incentivized for their own graduates to have as high a GPA as possible so that they get into the better law schools so that they are more prestigious alums. And my school, school is going to offer A plus pluses. But you know what's Dude, so dumb about it's the a grading five, system? You get a 5.0 if you get an A++. <laughs> and they're only available at my school. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, ben. I'm just saying this is this whole thing is, I, I'm just, even as we talk about it, think about the increments here. The increments are 4.33 and then you go to 4 and then you go to 3.67. They're just two, the jumps. Like, we should just do a percentile system. Exactly. What did you get in that class? You yeah. got 97.6%. Boom. That's what your grade is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like the jumps are weird. The 4.0 scale, though, is like so addictive that apparently when the law schools actually calculate their index. Yeah, they're they're bringing they're pretty the much LSAT down to they're the bringing 4 LSAT scale. down to a 4.0 scale is what it seems to be. For most if you schools, put it, yeah. if, at most schools, if you put in like 170 and a 3.8. GPA, then it's, oh, that's a 3.85 student or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so you guys love the 4.0 scale so much because they do give four grades on a 4.0 scale in law schools. So yeah, it's a, everybody's addicted to the real dumb 4.0 scale. Okay, quick Google search says that in 1785, Yale president Ezra Stiles implemented the first grading scale in the United States based on four descriptions. And then he has these four Latin terms I can't read. Um, but it sounds like that's where the 4.0 scale started. Thanks, Ezra. <laughs> Amazing. Cancel him. <laughs> All right. Welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Rebecca. I'm one of the LSAT teachers at the Demon and a 2L or actually about to be 3L at the University of Maryland. And with me is our dear friend, Ruth, a an esteemed um let's say teacher emeritus at the LSAT demon who is just about to end her tenure with us. And we thought we would take a little time to talk with Ruth, catch up, see what's going on. So Ruth, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm so glad you're here. Well, we're calling these um, exit interviews before some of our uh, very favorite friends go on to bigger and better things, or maybe just different things. Cause what could ever be bigger and better than the LSAT <laughs> demon? Um, so Ruth, why are you leaving? What's next for you? 
Sure. So I'm not sure when this episode will come out, but my last day with the team will be June 10th. And I'm leaving first for summer vacation and then after that uh, to begin my first year of law school at Yale in the fall. Yay. Awesome. We love that. Um, what kind of law are you interested in? What's what's the um, dream job for you? That's a great question. And unfortunately, I don't have a very good answer to it at this point. I think I have in mind maybe four to five different jobs I would love to have, but I'm really open, I think, at this point to learning more about different careers. I definitely at some point, I think, would want to do some kind of government service. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I'm very open to to learning more and to seeing all the options that might be available. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. So tell me a little bit about what you learned while you were teaching for the demon. Sure. So I've been teaching for the demon now, I guess, for about a year. Uh, it's gone by very quickly. And I think, well, the first thing I learned is that our students are great and they always inspire me. And I think there are so many different uh, paths that lead to law school. I was sort of a pretty typical, I think, pre-law type of person. I did take some time to work, but I just was like, okay, college, a little bit of work, grad school. Uh, But I really enjoyed that experience was uh, getting to know all of our our students. Maybe more specific to the LSAT, I think I learned that it really is easy. I know that sometimes people can take that the wrong way uh, because it can be a struggle at the beginning. But after having gotten so much more practice, I think, in than the typical student, I've been at this, well, including when I was studying myself, well over a year. It's just all the same at a certain point. um, And it's very straightforward. So I think that was probably one of the biggest things I learned. Yeah, I love that. I do think our students are really phenomenal. I like really genuinely just enjoy teaching class every day Mm -hmm. because they're so great. And yeah, you do have this. I have had this thought many times that I'm like, wow, I wish I was taking the LSAT now because it's so much easier than when I was like paying $200 to take it many moons ago. Totally. Yes. I'm not surprised you had the same experience. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So tell me what is your best advice for new demon students or people who are new studying, you know, wherever uh, they're starting out on their journey? I think my biggest piece of advice that I give to people when they're like, where do I start? For instance, is just start with the a practice test, start with a real question and don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big thing, I think, for people who are just starting out, our students may be less so because of our overall ethos, but anyone who's just starting an LSAT journey thinks that they need to plan out the whole thing in advance from day mm-hmm. one. And I would just encourage people that that's not the right mentality. It's less of a curriculum, right? And more of a a set of skills. So you can start anywhere. You don't have to worry about doing it wrong. Just get in there, take a question, get it wrong, and then figure out why you got it wrong and what happened and you'll be on your way. Yeah, totally. I do feel like one thing that I've noticed is different of our mentality is like, you know, it's kind of just reading like just read it. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't I don't want to really give you like some cutesy pootsy tips, tricks, garbage that's not going to do you any good, but if you just like read it. Thankfully, Start of course, there. I have more pertinent advice than that in class, but at the at, at the end of the day, that's what it is, right? It's like mm-hmm. you can do this. This isn't too hard for you. Totally. It might take some work, but you can do it. You just have to really actually like slow down. 
Yeah. Totally. Okay. So let's say, um, we have some new demon teachers coming in to replace, um, only, only in the schedule and never in our hearts. (laughs) Some of our, um, teacher emeritus, our faculty emeritus, that is definitely what I'm calling you guys. Um, what is your advice for a new demon teacher? Uh, that's great. I think when I started, I was really nervous. So maybe that would be my first piece of advice is don't be nervous. The students will be very nice and supportive of you. Nothing bad is going to happen. No one is going to be mad at you. It will go, the class will go okay. Um, and maybe on that note, on the note of don't be nervous, also don't be afraid to make mistakes. Hmm. So, so a lot of the way that I teach my classes, especially logical reasoning, is I'll glance at the questions ahead of time, but I generally don't go through every single answer choice and think, okay, what will I say for why this one is wrong and why this the right one is right? And sometimes when a student asks me a question about why so-and-so answer is wrong, I'm like, uh, good question. I uh, never thought about that before. And uh, trust yourself, right, that you understand the test well enough and that you do have the ability that it takes that in that moment it can be a time for you and the students to work together and it doesn't have to be uh, all perfection all the time. I think that's so true. I think you get a much more valuable learning experience from watching somebody actually think through the question as opposed to like, Oh, here we go. I already have the right answer. Go ahead. You know, Mm -hmm. like, and there have been a handful of times where I've just straight up gotten an answer wrong in Mm -hmm. class and I've said, okay, so it's B because blah, blah, blah. And then somebody will like very politely be like, oh, I think the answer is actually C. And I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, duh. But it gives you this really good opportunity to be like, oh yeah, wait, here's where I went wrong. And this mm-hmm. is going to happen. Like if you're in this fantasy world where you're never going to get a question wrong ever again, that is not how this works. Totally. But I can say, why did I get it wrong? And what did I do? And what should I do differently next time? And I would say 99.9% of the ones I have gotten wrong are, okay, I was just rushing, guys. I should have just (laughs) slowed down because I thought I knew what was going on and I wanted to keep moving in class or I was worried about how much time we had left in class, which is the stupidest reason to rush. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, So true. Um, So why did you decide to teach for the demon? Great question. Uh... This is probably going to make me sound like a little bit of a nerd, but I honestly thought it would be fun. And at that time, it was still a bit more COVID lockdown. And I was like, oh, I'll maybe get some excitement in my life. This will be like fun and exciting. That was the main impetus behind it. I was a very loyal podcast listener always, even before I started studying with the demon. And so I heard Nathan get on there and say, hey, we're hiring among people who are our listeners and our students. Email me if you're interested. And that kind of got the ball rolling. It all really came together. I actually worked for the team a little bit, and we have some team members now, too, uh, who are either still studying for their test or are studying to retake maybe and get a better score. And I was it was before my first take and I had been scoring well. And so I was a little bit confident. I was like, I hope I will get the score that will put me in the percentile guys need and then I'll be able to teach. But even just through being a TA and having a non-teaching role, I think I learned a lot about the team and the ethos of what we believe here. And that mm-hmm. helped me a lot once I got in the classroom myself. Yeah, totally. That is nice, especially when you kind of already know a little bit of our perspective on things from like listening to the podcast and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. I do think we're pretty unique among LSAT companies in that mm-hmm. like we 
we're probably the only company that actively discourages our students from even going to law school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. I'm in it. I'm almost done with it. Don't do it. You know what I mean? Totally. So I do think that helps a lot because I don't feel like teaching with a demon, you never really have to like sugarcoat things or pretend like, oh, it's like, you just have to do such a noble profession or whatever. Like, no. And I appreciate that. I agree. And I think that that's actually something that's good about the business model of, for instance, live classes is that you're not locking people in and saying, oh, okay, you want to take on this date? Let's work backwards and have you locked in. I Maybe it works for some people, but I think that the way that that we work is very flexible and gives people the opportunity if life happens, if you realize, hey, this don't go to law school, don't pay for law school stuff has me going more in the don't go camp. Great. And we're very supportive of all of our students and just want them to actually be successful in the bigger picture. For sure. I feel like the uh, best way, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I'll save until I like, I I, want to subscribe, but I'll save it until the month before I'm going to take the test. I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. do it as early as possible because you're going to get all the best advice. And then you can stop subscribing if you don't want to anymore. And then just use the advice and the the skills that you got and study by yourself. Like you'll be fine. But I feel like um, if you start and then you hate it, mm-hmm. the teachers of the demon will be like, literally go do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is good. But then this is this is a good thing to say because there'll be people who are like, yeah, I literally can't do anything else. So I'm going to make mm-hmm. it work. And they do. And they're great. Totally. I love it. Um, so tell me a little bit about like your LSAT studying journey and, um, you know, your law school application cycle and all of that fun stuff. Sure. So I took the LSAT in April of 2021 and I had started studying for the test seriously that January. I had seen an LSAT before. I think I took like one practice test and then tried to study for it once, like while I also was working a summer internship. And I was like, this is this is too much for me right now. I can't I can't handle this. Uh, But then I came back to it seriously that January, January of 2021. And I tried a few different prep resources. I did some books. I used other sites. Uh, But I really do credit specifically the podcast for Mm -hmm. getting me hooked up with the LSAT demon philosophy and way of thinking uh, about the, about the test. And I guess that's maybe another piece of advice. I, I give this to everyone who asks, I say, look, I know I work for a company and I know, yes, we do sell things, but the free resources themselves are really, I think some of the best out there, uh, the blogs, the podcast, especially for just motivation for test mentality. It really, really, for me changed my mentality that I should try first of all, to get, 99th percentile score that like even something that I was really confident I could pull off like I don't know high 160s 170 I was like if I can do better it pays off a lot that was something I think I learned from Ben and Nathan and working to put together my most competitive application and realizing that the test was such a big part of that Hmm. so after I got my score in April of last year I started teaching shortly thereafter and I put together my application materials that fall I already told this to Nathan on the the other daily episode. I did not follow the September advice, but don't do what I did. It was really stressful. Actually, one thing I will say about that is in addition to 
the issues of uh, potentially forfeiting like better outcomes in your admission cycle, the stress of not knowing what's going to be happening to you if you've put off your applications is another reason I think that maybe you don't discuss enough yeah. uh, that you should just get them out as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I'm very lucky. I had a very uh, good cycle despite being a little bit slow to start and got in all the places I applied and decided to attend Yale. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's important too, to say like your story is an outlier. And even though it had a happy ending, you would not do it the same way again, even though you ended up with a good result. No, it was not good in that way. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And so I think sometimes people hear that and they're like, Oh yeah, well I'll just do this. And also there's, there's a very different, story for somebody who doesn't have, I'm guessing your undergrad GPA was very strong. And I'm guessing, Mm -hmm. obviously, I know your LSAT score was very strong. And I think it's the being early in the admission cycle is one of the last great advantages that can still be there. Even if you have to wait a year, you have this huge advantage that you can just give yourself for free when you don't have some of the other advantages. You know, if you have a mediocre or not great GPA, you can't do anything about it, you know? So that's, I think your story is very helpful for that. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. Any last words of wisdom, tidbits for teachers, students, anyone? Hmm. I think, uh, it's good to begin when you have a goal to like begin with the, the end in mind. So if you know what kind of school you want to go to, do as much research as you can about exactly what your application should be like to to match their preferences. One thing I did during the, this is more admissions advice, during my admissions cycle was I listened to a lot of the podcasts and materials that the admissions officers themselves put out. They make quite a few. Uh, the deans from Harvard and Yale Law School have a podcast that I would recommend. And they also go, they all admissions officers, I think, kind of love to talk. They love people. It's why they do their job. And so they get interviewed by like everyone under the sun. They're always giving interviews. And I think that it's really helpful for people to at least hear a few of those because it helps you see, I think, the uh, types of things they look for in their own words and also the way that they think about, uh, about making decisions. So that would be my piece of advice if you're starting your admissions journey is try to get a little bit in the head of an admissions counselor because those are the people who will ultimately be reading your materials. So yeah, That's beyond that, That's everything great. that we say on the podcast is yeah, fabulous, good advice. So yes, especially if it's the podcast episode with the two of us. That's the best. <laughs> so true. Just saying. No, I think that's great advice. And that's very lawyerly advice too. Like, hey, if I want to appeal to this person, I better see what that person has said. I better mm-hmm. go do my homework and go research and see. I think, you know, listening, I, I don't think you can be very savvy in the law school application game without doing some of the things like that. Even like people tell me all the time, I didn't even realize there were scholarships to law school, you know, mm-hmm. or I didn't even realize that this was, was an option or whatever. And it's like, oh man, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> totally. This is, there's more to this game than you would know on the surface. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. It has been sure. a true honor and joy. We have an email here from Darian. Uh, do you want to take this one? Yeah. Good afternoon. As a student going into my sophomore year of college, 3.89 GPA currently, what can I do to stand out to law schools aside from the LSAT? My goal is to get into schools like Georgetown, Duke, Berkeley, etc. 
I don't really care about schools like Harvard or Yale. Thanks, Darian. <laughs> um, Darian, I'm really curious why you don't care about schools like Harvard or Yale. Totally. But you do care about schools like Georgetown, Duke, Berkeley. You're also a sophomore. Um, I don't know. It just seems like preemptively dismissive. Yeah, it is. It is odd. With a 3.89 and let's say a 170. You know, that's wow. That's surprisingly not. I mean, you're, you're getting scholarships in the at schools in the ranked in the 20s in the 20s. By the way, I'm on lsatdemon.com slash scholarships, and I'm just playing with some numbers here for Darian. Well, y- Yale's um, 25th percentile for GPA is 3.88. So if you bring your GPA, you're already above the 25th percentile, but if you bring it up to a 3.95, you'll be above Yale's 50th percentile for GPA. Yeah, get better grades, Darian. Why are you talking to us? 3.89? Okay. Do better. Yep. That, that's going to be good, even for schools like Georgetown, Duke, Berkeley especially, which weighs GPA slightly more than LSAT. The only school that does that? <laughs> the only school that does, but it does, and apparently you're interested in it. So, yeah, improve your GPA. That's how you want to stand out. You, People you out there with to, 3.2s yeah. are, like, pulling their hair out right now going, what? You're telling her that she needs to get better grades? Yeah, we are, because you're... You're applying to an academic thing for like gunners, for like grinders, for achievers. Yeah. And it's hierarchical and you're accumulating a record in your favor. Lawyers are heavily driven by facts. If you can put nothing but A's on your record, then the law schools go, hey, look, this one has nothing but A's on her record. And it's an indicator that you'll be able to be successful in law school. Not as good of an indicator as LSAT. Yeah, but get your GPA now. Yeah. Yeah, it's I got three pieces of advice for Darian. Okay. Straight A's from here on out if you're serious about being a lawyer. You want to go to Georgetown, Duke, Berkeley especially? Straight A's from here on out. No excuses. Take easier classes if you have to. Straight A's from here on out. Two, stop worrying about the LSAT because you need to get straight A's from here on out. Yep. Maybe I have four things. Well, maybe, maybe those two were one Just keep thing. going, Nathan. Don't stop. <laughs> you don't like my numbering? <laughs> no, no. Just like go to 10. I don't know. We'll do whatever. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> um, don't say, what can I do to stand out aside from the LSAT? <laughs> because the LSAT is the first thing. I mean, well, you're still in undergrad. So grades, then the LSAT. But the LSAT yep. is the biggest thing. And so none of don't worry about all the other like extracurriculars. This is not undergraduate admissions. The undergrad, they want balanced applicants, blah, blah, blah. They want to the, see that you didn't just play video games all day. The law now, school <laughs> law school is hierarchical. They don't give a fuck. Like yep. get get the LSAT and the GPA. That we can predict your scholarships, Darian, based on your LSAT and your GPA. So the standing out, you don't don't worry about that. You're going to like you're not going to stand out unless you have the LSAT. So that's like for for these kinds of schools that you're talking about, you need the LSAT. Maybe that's what she's saying. That's that's why she doesn't want to go to Harvard or Yale is because she's done a bit of LSAT prep and she's afraid of the high LSATs that those schools have. Oh, I was just interpreting it as she already knows the LSAT's important. 
what other things do I need to do? Well, yes, but why does she say I don't really care about Harvard and Yale? That's so weird to me. It is weird. I um that was the last I, thing I wanted to say. Is like why are you against Harvard and Yale? Those are better schools. They will give you better opportunities. There's a real difference. Here, right? Yeah. When you say no. Berkeley, et cetera, I think, well, Stanford's probably up there. And then no, that's just <laughs> Stanford's up there with Harvard and Yale. But, exactly. but the point is, is they're all like they're all great schools. What do and you want to do a... with your legal career? Figure. I mean, why are you going to law school? Are you going to law school because it's just the next step in your education? And then you're not going for the right reasons and you don't know why you need to go into the schools that you're going to eventually apply to. Like if you if you want to be a killer lawyer, then Harvard and Yale may be the only place you can go. Stanford is a better law school than Berkeley. Absolutely. Like the caliber of people that are there. It's like just it's not the same. I'm not I'm not shitting on Berkeley. Berkeley is an amazing law school. It's dramatically better than Hastings, you know, but but Stanford is dramatically better than Berkeley. The people who go to Stanford are incredible. Well, and here's the thing, Darian, you're, you have a 3.89, which is great. And you're a sophomore, which means you have the potential to do even better than that. You're still in contention. You yeah. can still be an Olympian. Why are you like, nah, I don't, nah, I don't do the Olympics. No, no, that's just, no. I would, I would just like broaden those. Hor- I mean, here's the thing, right? Keep all the doors open at this point. Why are you closing doors when you're a sophomore in college? Yep. And the best way to keep those doors open, again, straight A's from here on out, then the very best LSAT you possibly can, then apply broadly. Yep. As far as as worrying about... Apply broadly. Yep. Yes. Apply early with your best LSAT. Apply broadly. Keep all the doors open. You know, let them close that door for you. I'm worried that she's like, well, those schools are elite, elite. Like, I wouldn't be able to get into those schools. I, if that's your analysis, Darian, I, don't sell yourself short. Get the very best LSAT you can and and apply to all of these real top schools. Because you, you've got the grades right now where you it's still possible that you're going to be applying with a 3.95. And applying with a 3.95 and a 175 or something means that all the doors are open. I want to say one more thing here, and that is that you're a sophomore. So you're probably one of those people who is, I mean, most sophomores are not thinking about law school. (laughs) No. So I'm, I'm concerned that you might be one of those people who plans to finish school and then go to law school immediately. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but my concern is, is that going to force you to take the LSAT before you're ready to get that 4.0? Right. Like if if you let the timeline compromise your GPA, focus first and foremost on your GPA, if you can knock it out of the park and have time to study for the LSAT and knock it out of the park, then fine. You can go to law school right after you finish undergrad. But if you can't do that, then don't. Hey there, welcome to the LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Matt Dumont, an LSAT teacher and tutor at the LSAT Demon, and now a rising 3L at the University of Maryland. With me is Michael Gaskell, who is a rising 2L and dual degree MBA at Maryland Law and John Hopkins, who has already done three judicial internships during his law school career. How you doing, Michael? Matt, how's it going? Good to be with you. <laughs> I'm good. You answered my question with a question. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. 
Good. Uh, uh, how's your, uh, I mean, it's just about to start your summer, right? Uh, what'd you uh, just finish up? What are you about to do? Yeah, I am uh, just a, a couple days into uh, my summer vacation. So I just finished my year at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. And during that year, I did a lot. I uh, interned in the fall for a judge. Uh, I interned in the spring for a judge. I worked um, with my judge from the fall. Uh, she and I published an article together that's going to appear in the uh, Norton Annual Survey of Bankruptcy Law. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I did a moot court competition, a bankruptcy moot court competition, which was a lot of fun. So it was a very busy year. Uh, all that is all that is to say, I'm glad that I have a few days off. <laughs> I feel that. Um, uh, I, uh, I I feel that hard. I, I'm just uh, about two weeks into my judicial internship for the summer. And it's like, whoo, I'm ready for a vacation already, which is. Yeah, but you know. but you and I are, are similar in the fact that we like what we do. And so yeah. I think we're very fortunate to like um, to when you enjoy what you do, it's it's not really work. Yeah, I feel really that. Hard. <laughs> I feel that. Well, speaking about uh, judicial internships and judicial clerkships and that kind of stuff, um, we got a great uh, listener email here um, uh, from E, and it said, uh, it'd be great to have Matt and others talk about the process by which they gained uh, judicial internships and clerkships on the uh, LSAT Demon Daily podcast. And uh, then she has some specific questions. The questions are, what should a pre-law, a 1L, a 2L, 3L, et cetera, be doing to gain a clerkship? Um, what are the main contributing factors to securing a clerkship and doing well at it? Uh, what kinds of clerkships can one do, uh, expect and or shoot for at a lower tiered school? And are there classes or clubs or associations to join to be better positioned for a clerkship? Um, so I want to sort of start off with, you know, what what kind of broad strokes things do you think um, apply to judicial internships, clerkships, that kind of thing? Yeah. So you and I are are probably a little bit unique in the fact that we're both older students. Yeah. Um, you know, you're certainly older than I am, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think what so if I can just share my perspective, I, I have a legal mentor who really, as I was going into law school, helped me plan out what I was going to do with my summers. And he was very adamant. He says, the first summer, you're going to work for a judge. I said, okay. And so I had no um, game plan other than go to my school's career development office and say, where is the list of judges? How do I do this? And start applying. And so uh, I think that's really good because you don't need an elaborate game plan necessarily to be successful. So, you know, you find out which judges are hiring. And I think every law school career office should have a list handy. Uh, and so I really just went into this process not knowing a, a lot. Um, and I just started applying for judges uh, for judicial internships. Fun fact about my application for judicial internships. Uh, all of the cover letters that I sent to judges, all of them had a glaring grammatical error in the very first <laughs> sentence. <laughs> and yet they overlooked that. <laughs> I, you know, so I, I, that should be that should be reassuring to a lot of people that, um, you know, even if I can get a judicial internship, 
you know, you're, you're in good shape. So I think what, I think what allowed me, and the, the reason I bring up our age, I think what allowed me to secure four offers for judicial internships in one, one L spring semester was I had good grades. Yep. So I, I think that is, uh, I think that's really important. So what can a law student do? Work really hard and get good grades. Yep. Um, secondly, um, I have an interesting resume. Uh, and so th there, I want to be very clear that there's nothing wrong with being young, coming right from college and coming right into law school. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I wish for a lot of reasons that that had been my path, but it wasn't. Uh, and so I think that my resume just was interesting enough to stand out. And so I think the interesting resume and good grades uh, got me the interviews. Yeah. And, th and then once I got into the interviews, uh, I don't do many things well, but I do interview well. And <laughs> so you have any tips for that? Practice, practice, um, take as many, you know, if there are like in your career development office, if there's a lot, an alumni who will do a mock interview with you, yep. um, if you want to even do it with your classmates, um, you know, get, you practice with classmates and throw curveball questions at each other. The skill in interviewing is the ability to just think on your feet. Right. Um, and that's a really, really important skill. And then more than that, I think what helped me succeed in my interviews with these judges was giving thoughtful answers to questions. And how do you, how do you give thoughtful answers? Well, you have to be a thoughtful person and you have to reflect on um, why you're doing what you're doing. Right. And so I think the best conversational answers I had with judges were to those why questions. You know, why did you go to law school? Right. And I have a really interesting why answer. And if, if you know, there's a listener who is in law school because her parents, you know, really wanted her to do that, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I would encourage that person to start to think of the different layers that are behind that. And so when you get a why question, you can really reflect on it. Um, and I think that shows a, a mature level of thinking that judges are looking for. Yeah, I want to uh, double down on a couple of things uh, that you articulated. And I think good grades is essential. Like, yeah. you yeah. have to show that you have the work ethic that yeah. that being in a chambers requires. Yeah. And that is very clearly demonstrated by having good grades, um, uh, you know, being at the top of your class. I'm not saying that you have to be in the top five people or whatever, but some most of the uh, judicial internships and clerkship requirements I've seen is at least the top third. Um, uh, some of them are, are higher than that, but that shows sort of like the work ethic that um, goes into it. The other thing that you kind of um, uh, hint, uh, pointed out is they want to have interesting people to work with, right? Yeah. They want to have someone that they enjoy working with. You're going to be working very closely, even as a judicial intern in some instances, um, some instances not, but um, as a clerk, especially, like there might only be one yes. of you for yeah. the judge. It might be you, the judge, and a That's judicial right. assistant. It might be you, the judge, and two clerks. Um, uh, but like 
even if you're at the Supreme Court, there's only like four or five of them per chambers. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a very small group of people working on really heady, complex things. And so it's really helpful to enjoy the person that you work alongside of. And yeah, so I think right. uh, you illustrate that um, with saying like, hey, I'm a good interviewer. Like that's you're showing that you're a good person. And I think that that's really yeah. important. Uh, I think I think you're exactly right. And it's not just it's not just will the judge want to work with me, because I think that's something that judges consider. Do I actually want to spend the summer with this guy? Yeah. Um, but if you're talking about a clerkship and perhaps maybe we should distinguish um, what judicial and, internship and clerkship. Is. Yeah, yeah. And so um, go ahead. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So a judicial internship is something that you do during school um, uh, while you're still a law student. Uh, you might work a semester or a summer, um, uh, you know, typically, you know, 12, 13, 14 weeks in a chambers. And you're typically underneath the clerks there. The clerks are sort of guiding your day to day things. Um, uh, you might have interaction with the judge directly or not, um, but you're being supervised by the clerks. Clerks are people that are hired for an entire year Sometimes it becomes a career. Um, there are certainly people that are like, hey, I'm going to clerk for life. Um, but uh, typically it's the year after or two years after you graduate with your JD. Um, and people do that like while they're waiting for the results of their bar exam, for one, because it's a legal job that you can do um, while you're not yet a barred attorney. But it's also a really great research and writing training for the rest of your career because you're writing things that have to stand up to the judge's scrutiny and then also the wider court and all of the potential legal industry uh, legal community in your state or the country and so the clerkship is um uh can be very prestigious it can be it's a lot of work but it can be very prestigious i think so what what both of those positions have in common so when so as a judicial intern I've written a ton of bench memos yeah. and a bench memo is basically getting a judge ready to hear a case. Right. But as a clerk, as a clerk, the, the judge is going to assign the writing of the opinion to the clerk. Right. And so I think what judges are looking for. And so if you want to land one of these spots, you should think about this. I think what a judge is looking for is, can I give an assignment to a person and take my hands off, come back in a week, and it's going to be done. Yep. Judges are very, very busy people. And so it's really important that you establish that you are going to be able to work without needing a lot of direction. Yeah. I remember my very first bench memo, I had no idea what to do. And how did you figure out what to do? So it's really that's a that's a great question that you ask. Um, <laughs> my my judge, the chief judge, uh, the chief judge at the time, uh, he says, "Give me this memo by you know next Friday," and I he hands me six hundred pages worth of record extract and we and and appellate brief and appellee brief and and I'm like you know where where do you start? But that's when my law school training kicked in, and so. I had to figure out what the issue was. You know, when 1L teachers talk about Iraq, it's really not, they're not doing it to be annoying, even though they managed to be annoying in the process. 
But I had to figure out what is the issue, what's the relevant law, and what is the rule that comes out of that relevant law? How do I apply the facts to the law or the law to the facts and draw a conclusion? That's IRAC. And so, you know, you have to be able to, to, to think on your feet and take that, that 1L training that you get and immediately jump in and apply it. Yeah, um, and, he, and he wasn't, you know, <laughs> he, this judge was not going to say, he was not going to spell that out for me. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and the idea that you have to take you have to take your loss studies seriously, learn those kind of things and then apply it. And so um, uh, the way that I learned how to do it was I was given some example bench memos and I read them not for pleasure because it was my job at that moment um, yeah. and and then kind of took those as a blueprint and um, uh, made my own. Um, okay, so uh, let's just make sure that we covered uh, these yeah, sure, sort of specific sure. questions. So you mentioned having a mentor um, guiding mm-hmm. you towards this, uh, but then like 1L, 2Ls to be gaining clerkships. I just want to sort of um, stress that the clerkship process is mostly going to be during your 2L year um, because you're applying for the they, – they start selecting clerks during the summer between or or even earlier there's my friends uh, uh we have friends at maryland that already have clerkships for av- after graduation mm-hmm. and we're rising 3l uh, i'm a rising 3l um and michael was in my cohort so uh you really have to be on the ball with that you have to get involved with your cdo you have to get like the list of judges like michael said and be get your writing samples together um make sure that you have competent writing samples from your 1l summer um, uh, make sure that you have letters of recommendation, like all those mm-hmm. kind of boxes that you got to check for the clerkship process. You need to do that early in your 2L year so that when you get to like Christmas time, you're ready to start submitting stuff because the people are start going to get interviewed and start getting jobs in the spring. Um, can 3L I, is I, too late. Can I add, can <laughs> yeah. I add two, two very quick things? Yeah, of course. Um, if there's a listener who's saying, how do I get a good writing sample? Work yeah. really hard on your writing. And if there's a listener who's asking, uh, how do I get a professor recommendation? Get to know your professors. Yeah. Go to office hours, do well in their class. Like go to every office hours, show interest in, in the subject. Uh, I don't know how important letters of recommendation are. I imagine that they're somewhat important. So the way you get those is the professor needs to know your name. They're required, um, for every clerkship that I've yeah. applied for is either to have recommenders or letters of rec specifically, yeah. um, main contributing factors we've already talked about, but I do want to point out that there are a lot of clerkships specifically, not necessarily judicial internships, but clerkships, a lot of them require journal. Um, uh, that's like with an asterisk, because I think if you can, for instance, um, uh, have, if you've had a lot of experience, judicial interning, you could also like, that's a similar check mark next to your name that you're a competent reader, researcher, writer. Um, but journal is a big one for a lot of, yes. uh, a lot of judges. Um, and then, uh, the kind of clerkships one can expect and, or shoot for from a lower tiered school. I mean, shoot for state stuff. Like I think that's available wherever you go. Um, uh, whether you're at the, the bottom school in the state or the top school in the state, there's state judges at the trial level, the appellate level, whatever. Um, but there's no reason that you can't be at the top of your class and shoot for a federal clerkship as well. Shoot your yeah. shot. 
Yeah. So I have a, a comment about that. I think um, <laughs> I've worked in Maryland. I've worked in the state and federal systems. So in in the state of Maryland, my first judicial internship, the two clerks were both from T14 schools. Yep. Uh, and they're working in a state court. Uh, my second state internship, both of the clerks were from the University of Baltimore, which is a top 100. Uh, I, I, I think probably top 150, maybe. Okay. I, I don't I don't think it's in the top 100. And all that is to say is that I don't really think that ranking matters all that much. Yeah. So if and, and if, if I'm overstating that, then you can correct the record. But I think that you can distinguish yourself. Mm-hmm. At a, now, listen, if you are going to a school outside of the top 25, you're never going to get on the Supreme Court. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, there's no reason you can't get to the highest state court from mm-hmm. a low rank school. Yeah, absolutely. Because you can do good work and you can get a fine legal education yep. at a low rank school. And be so, the top of your class, for instance. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I want to uh, reiterate and double down on that, um, that the Supreme Court is probably out of reach for uh, most people, even in the top 14, um, yeah, uh, just it, to be yeah. super clear about that. And yeah. the journey to the Supreme Court re- typically requires uh, a federal district judge clerkship yes. and yes. then a court of appeals clerkship and then Supreme Court. And so you have to jump through multiple hoops to even be eligible even at the top. So um, there's definitely a journey there unless you go to Yale because Yale has an appellate clinic for the Supreme Court. They are the only school in the country that does that though. Um, So uh, I I think like Michael said, shoot your shot. You can still be applicable for federal clerkships. Um, uh, I know people from University of Maryland and I think University of Maryland is a fine school, but we're certainly not in the top like echelon of national schools. Um, that have worked on the Court of Appeals as clerks. And so that's totally within your grasp. You just have to do good work. Yep, that's exactly right. Um, Any uh, sort of final comments, Michael? It is a really great experience. I would encourage every law student to to try to do this because what happened for me is my first year of law, your your first year of law school is like a, a whirlwind, you know? Yep. And that summer that I spent with this judge, and he was a f- all of these judges, they have, are just phenomenal thinkers, and have really forced me to uh, apply what I've learned. And so I think um, because of their instruction, uh, I am such a better legal thinker and reasoner and writer uh, after these internships. Um, I really can't overstate the value that they have provided for me. So um, I would encourage anyone to, to to give it a shot. And if I can, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. If I, if I can be a help to anyone, uh, people have helped me. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I would be uh, willing um, to do, you know, anything I could within reason to try to help someone else. So, so that's um, Michael Gaskell on LinkedIn. At the University of Maryland. <laughs> and, and Johns Hopkins Carry Business School. And Johns yep. Hopkins Carry Business School. Yeah, um, uh, I'm going to wrap it up with, uh, I think it is an incredible experience. It's going to make you a better writer. And you get to work on really cool stuff. Yeah, like constitutional right. issues, trial issues, issues of evidence. You really get to put the nuanced work in there. And if like that makes you excited, 
maybe law school's for you. Maybe working in the chambers is for you. Yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on this. This has been a lot of fun. Email daily at lsatdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.